Hey, everybody out there, our podcast followers, a quick message from me, Laura. Commercial media is busy out there playing an outsized role in tearing the country apart. But we believe in covering people and practices that are pulling us together to build a more fair future. And we hear every day from people that programming like this is important to them. So we are in the midst of a May Day fund drive. We've been offered a $5,000 match if we can bring in 50 new donations by May 20th. The clock is ticking as non-commercial, not-for-profit media. We don't spend as much as the other guys, but we don't have as deep pockets either. We rely on you. So what do you say? Are you ready to pitch in to expand the support base for reporting about possibility and love? Or to let the drone of commercial cynicism take over even this space in the airwaves? Please donate now at lauraflanders.org forward slash donate and spread the word. Help us get that $5,000. Thanks. Here's this week's show. And this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. A few weeks back, we talked on this program to Texans about making positive change in all sorts of ways that we're typically told are impossible. Today, we take our investigation to Washington, D.C. to speak with one man who, to my mind, epitomizes the practice of doing what needs to be done against the odds. At a time when many Americans have grown frustrated with Congress, cynical about the courts, and afraid that our democracy has been hijacked by demagogues and big money, Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, has been out there taking on politics' most difficult challenges in a difficult place during one of the hardest times in his personal life. He's a constitutional scholar as well as a longtime professor, and in the hours after the assault on the Capitol, it was he who was chosen to head up the second impeachment investigation of Donald Trump. He currently serves on the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, which is getting ready to hold hearings in public this June. And he's the author of Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy, a memoir of the 45 days at the start of 2021, in which he lost his son, Tommy, to suicide, lived through the violent insurrection in our nation's capital, and led the impeachment effort. Not so long ago, I was talking with right-wing watchdog and researcher Lisa Graves, um, who described U.S. democracy as hanging by a thread. And I thought I'd start by asking you, do you agree? In one sense, yes, because there are people who have predatory designs on us. Um, you know, Trump uh, and his coterie, his entourage and his movement um, are determined to rule or ruin. Either they're going to control the government and the state apparatus for their own private money-making purposes and ideological purposes, or they're going to ruin our opportunity to get anything done. Um, so that puts us in a serious danger zone. On the other hand, I do tell people the vast majority of Americans are on our side. Um, Hillary beat him by more than 3 million votes. Joe Biden beat him by 7.5 million votes. The young people are coming on the side of democracy. The new Americans are coming on the side of democracy. And so they've got a bag of tricks over there with the voter suppression, the electoral college, the gerrymandering of congressional districts, the packing of the courts, right-wing traditional activism. But they need them because anything 
approximating real democracy would put them out of business. I think of democracy as a fairly sort of nonpartisan affair. And, and I think that there are people who vote all sorts of ways who, who care about the things that you care about. How should they or how do you invite them um, to look at the hearings that are about to kick off? Um, what's your plan for those January 6th hearings? And how will you deal with the sort of urgency of getting things done that are both public and consequential, given if you lose the majority, if the Democrats lose the majority in the midterms, the probably whole thing will get shut down? Well, we've got a strong bipartisan select committee examining the events of January 6th, the causes behind it, and then what we need to do moving forward to fortify uh, democratic institutions against future coups and insurrections and so on. So it's precisely as you say, we are in a, a research, fact-finding, investigative, educational mode, and we're trying to speak to the whole country. And um, it's complex, of course, because um, you know, political parties are by necessity active participants in democracy, but we are trying to speak across political parties to the entire country about the necessity of defending democratic process, because what we saw on January 6th was an attempt to overthrow the constitutional order and the regular process for electing presidents. Will we find out things we didn't know already? Very much so. I think the vast majority of things people are going to hear will be for the very first time. Um, and, you know, even for people who understand the nature of the danger, uh, it, it's a completely different thing when you actually get the names and the places and the details of what happened and you see how close we were. I mean, it at several points, it came down to the heroism and valor of particular officers. And you know that 150 of our officers ended up uh, brutalized, wounded, injured, hospitalized uh, with concussions, traumatic brain injuries, broken arms, legs, heart attacks, strokes, and so on. We're going to tell the whole story of how that happened. But also um, Mike Pence, uh, by refusing to cave into uh, Donald Trump's uh, designs, he also uh, prevented us from lapsing into an authoritarian form of government and martial law and perhaps civil war. So there were a, a number of moments when we could have lost it all. And we want people to see precisely what happened and how close we came. You said it's going to blow the roof off the house. Well, I, you know, if people are not completely um, immune and deadened to uh, the reality of things because of four years of Donald Trump's lies and propaganda and sinister conspiracy theories, yeah, this is the, the worst uh, presidential political offense against the union in American history. Uh, nothing else comes close to it. And just to go back to that question about consequences, I mean, you, do, you are on a very short timeline to get something actually done. Um, why are we waiting so long for the Justice Department? Um, will you subpoena Donald Trump? I mean, I'm channeling all the questions that have been thrown at me since I mentioned to my colleagues and friends that I was going to be talking with you. Yeah, well, uh, we have a great sense of urgency about what we're doing. Um, and we've moved in record time when you look at other major committees or commissions like the 9-11 Commission and uh, others that have examined traumatic events in our history. We're actually moving at lightning speed. Um, but I know that there's great frustration, which we all share, 
about the seeming uh, impunity of Donald Trump and his immediate coterie of aides. Um, on the other hand, uh, <clears throat> the DOJ has brought more than 800 prosecutions against participants in the insurrection. That investigation dwarfs anything that the Department of Justice has done in American history. Um, nothing comes close to it. And of course, nothing comes close to the kind of uh, violence leveled against the Capitol and against the Congress that we saw on January 6th. But I know people are eager to see you know, what the DOJ will do at the very uh, top level of um, the seditious conspiracies that were arrayed against us. And we are eager too. But our goal as a select committee is to get the truth to the people so we can make uh, reasonable and urgent decisions about what we need to do to protect ourselves going forward. And some of that has to do with shatterproof glass at different levels of the Capitol. Some of it has to do with reform of the Electoral Count Act and the Insurrection Act. And uh, to my mind, uh, we need to secure the right to vote and we need to secure the counting of votes against partisan manipulation and distortion, uh, which is really what we're up against in a lot of parts of the country right now. I mean, you've told the story many times and I don't want you to have to go back there, but it is important constantly for me to remember that the, when we say attacks on democracy for you and your fellows in the House and in the Congress, it, it was not metaphorical. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, those police officers saved our lives and not just um, the lives of the partisans of democracy, but the lives of um, putatively, at least, uh, the lives of people who were on the side of the insurrection um, and the coup. Uh, now, it, it may have been that they wouldn't have been killed had it come to that. I don't know the answer to it, but certainly there was uh, a lot of fear and terror on their side of the aisle, as well as on uh, our side of the aisle. So this was as close to fascism uh, as I ever want to see our country uh, come to. And uh, we need to turn it around very quickly. You know, the political scientists tell you that the key indicator of a successful coup is a recently failed coup where the coup plotters can uh, essentially diagram the deficiencies and the weaknesses in <clears throat> the incumbent regime. And there are those who uh, are adamant that Trump will take power under any circumstances um, in 2024, and we have got to do whatever we can to fortify and insulate the electoral system. So if our democracy is still kicking at, at this moment, <laughs> um, do we do enough with it is, is one of the questions I have for you. I mean, gerrymandering has brought us to a point where many of us live in fairly homogenous districts. Um, you represent a, a blue district where I would imagine you barely even have to campaign. Could we be doing more with the democracy that we still have? Well, definitely, yes. I mean, for one thing, the Senate could be doing with the democracy what the House is doing with it. I mean, we passed the For the People Act to protect early voting and weekend voting um, and mail-in balloting, which are all under attack uh, by state legislatures across the country with uh, just dozens and dozens of voter suppression schemes. But the Senate is completely hamstrung uh, by the filibuster. I mean, we've got a uh, lower prescription drug prices by giving the government the power in Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, which is a power the government's got in the Medicaid program. It's got in the VA program, again, 
We passed it in the House, but it's sitting over there in the Senate. We need to act on climate change, um, you know, which is bearing down upon us, which is a, a nightmare that is uh, very much on the minds of young people um, in the country, uh, but obviously affects everybody. So we got to be doing more with the government, but also, as you suggest, we got to be doing more with our politics. So yeah, I'm with you on this. Uh, on my side of the aisle, the the blue the people representing blue districts should not just sit back and you know be content with re-election. We need to mobilize the idealism and the energy within our own districts to help people in neighboring districts and in swing districts across the country. I think the Supreme Court's um, outrageous and impending destruction of the constitutional right to privacy uh, gives us the opportunity to mobilize people to go vote like we've never voted before. This is Laura Flanders. I'm Laura. Thanks for listening. My guest is Jamie Raskin, U.S. House Representative from Maryland's 8th Congressional District. He currently serves on the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, which is gearing up to hold public hearings throughout June. He's the author of Unthinkable Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy, a memoir of the first 45 days of 2021 in which he lost his son to suicide, lived through the insurrection, and led the impeachment effort against Donald Trump. You can watch this show on our YouTube channel or on over 300 public television stations around the country. See Jamie in action. Go to lauraflanders.org for more info. And while you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Subscribers get early information about all our web events and audio exclusives, including the live event I had with Jamie Raskin last fall. And you get first the full uncut conversations from our shows. Subscribers will be getting the full uncut conversation with Representative Raskin. Soon. Next, we discuss the unprecedented leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion backing overturning Roe v. Wade, the messaging for Democrats during the midterm year, the good, the bad, and the ugly of partisanship, and a whole lot more. But first, here's the Scrimshire remix of Fear of an Equal Planet featuring Abby Oliveira by Warriors of the Discotheques from their upcoming album Anthropause, soon to be released on the Republic of Music record label. You should know fear is profit, profit is ravenous, a dark mirror held up to the hearts of all of us, tightrope walking round and around this world wide web. Weaving spiders can never be sated, may you grow to be a never loving bane of their existence, together we will live in our power, so much greater than this, greater than the terror of the bigots in high office. Strength to dig as deep as we need to withstand the storms of their greed. On this wild trip, may you go on with love. You mentioned the Supreme Court. We're speaking in the you know immediate wake of the leak of the Alito draft of the decision in the abortion case that you mentioned. Is there a route to codifying Roe? I mean, to putting it in law so that we wouldn't constantly be debating this? And what do you say to people that say Democrats have never really wanted to come through on that because they need the, the whistle to get their election, to get their voters out? Well, we've already done it in the House of Representatives, Laura. We passed the Women's Health Protection Act, which is a codification of Roe, uh, and making sure that women continue to have the right with their physicians to make decisions as to 
you know, procreative and reproductive autonomy. So we've done it in the House. Again, this is something that is sitting in the Senate. Uh, obviously, we foresaw what was coming uh, with the Supreme Court, uh, with the Roberts Court and the war on Roe and Casey. Um, it still was astonishing for us to see it in writing. But we, of course, predicted it many months ago, and we did codify Roe versus Wade. So we've got to figure out how to crack the very tough nut of the U.S. Senate, because the filibuster um, basically gives not just 40 senators, but one senator the right to put a hold on legislation and tie it up indefinitely. So the world's greatest deliberative body has become the world's least deliberative body. So we've got FDR-style ambitions to bring progressive change and equality and freedom and justice to everybody in America, but we just don't have, don't have FDR-style majorities. Um, you know, when, when Roosevelt was in power, he had dozens of uh, uh, more representatives and uh, you know, 25 or 30 more senators than the Republicans did. And we're trying to you know, deal with the crises of our time with these extremely slender majorities. Uh, Ralph Nader was complaining the other day, the, the longtime uh, consumer advocate and independent candidate for president. He wrote, with its record-setting campaign fundraising, the Democratic Party can't seem to figure out how to go on the offensive. GOP fictions have left the Democrat apparatchiks, as he calls them, tongue-tied. They can neither come up with easily pummeling rebuttals nor even authentic boasting. How hard is it to boast about the $300 a month to over 60 million children cut off by the GOP? Does he have a point? I mean, what is the message of the Democrats this season? Well, uh, yeah, sure, he's got a point, and I hear this wherever I go, that um, you know, we don't have a problem with our politics or the policies we've been advancing. We've got a problem with the messaging. Um, and uh, so, yeah, let's consider the contest on. I mean, I, I'm out there telling uh, all the young people, here's my message. Everything that you need to know about Voting is everything you need to know about driving. If you want to go forward, you put it in D. If you want to go backwards, you put it in R. How's that for a message? And everything <laughs> flows out of that. If we want to make progress, you got to be on the side of democracy, which is the Democratic Party, because forgive my partisanship here, but I am a, an elected partisan figure. And I would just say, if, uh, you know, uh, whatever our flaws, whatever our imperfections in messaging or anything else, we are the party of democracy, and we are standing up to defend the Constitution and our democratic arrangements in the country. And we're not going to get anything done if we go down the road of the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and so on. We're not. I mean, that is a party of uh, that's you know been taken over for nihilism and the destruction of democratic purposes. Now, you are absolutely allowed to be partisan. I just have to keep the ship afloat here um, of a kind of sense of we do have a nation out there out there besides our kind of a partisan, you know, um, arcade mirror reflection that is usually what we get in our in our media. And, and I, question... I agree with that completely. If I could say a word about that, Laura, I'd yeah. love to, which is, look, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of double speak about partisanship, and I mean, nothing is more characteristic of any politician of any party than to spend the day with their caucus deciding on their party agenda, and then go out on the floor and denounce partisanship. And I would like to have a little more intellectual honesty and realism about it. Okay, partisanship 
and partisan combat is built into a democratic society. You could view it as the oxygen of democratic society. It is a reflection of our First Amendment that we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom of thought. There's an easy way to get rid of partisanship if that's what you don't like, which is move to a one-party state. And if you, you know, move to an authoritarian government, there won't be partisanship because the partisans will be in jail and then everybody else will just be for the dictator. So political parties, I give two cheers for political parties because they help us to articulate problems and solutions, agendas, educate the public, mobilize the voters, create a contrast, and then once we're in, you know, move for an agenda. But I only say two cheers because I think those of us who aspire and attain to public office have got to remember the day after the election's over, we've been fighting like cats and dogs, but once we've been elected, Remember what a party is. It comes from the French word parti, which means a part. Our party is just part of the whole, and we have to do what we can to speak for the whole. And, you know, we know how to do that. If you come to my district office in beautiful Rockville, Maryland, and you have a problem with Social Security or Medicare or VA benefits, we will serve you, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Green or Independent. We never ask about your political party affiliation, so we know how to do it. The problem is that if a, oftentimes when parties get into a minority posture and they're shrinking, then they will try to turn everything partisan and just try to obstruct. And I'm afraid that that's where we are now. We're seeing a lot of money being spent on military provi provisions for the Ukrainians. 33 billion in the last few days. It's approaching 50 billion in the last two months. Um, most of that going directly to military operations. And then at home, we still have this so-called defense budget that's eating up 53 cents of every dollar. Um, we just came, and last time I spoke to you, I had just come from doing a story about how a lot of that military contractor money um, trickles down to privatized military facilities and training places that we were able to show were places where people that came to the Capitol had trained. Um, are we ever going to see any attention to this? Or does the urgent need in Ukraine sort of, um, as you to use your word, bedazzle us from a bigger agenda of shrinking our military spending? Well, I mean, you ask an essential question because, um, you know, Putin's army has invaded Russia and killed several thousand civilians and they're murdering children and raping women and killing them and leaving them in the street. And democracy is under siege there, and we need to be on their side, and we need to be surging and rushing military assistance to them to defend themselves and protect themselves um, the, against Putin's invasion. Um, at the same time, we know that so much of uh, the money that has been spent in our military industrial complex, as President Eisenhower called it, um, has been siphoned off for uh, corruption and graft and bribery and waste. Um, and uh, it's a money-making operation for a lot of people. So we have to, on the one hand, um, rush aid to our allies in the Ukraine, and at the same time, uh, do the very tough work of making sure that money is not being ripped off for these other purposes and turned uh, against the American people in different ways, as you suggest. I mean, it was the fear of the founders of a standing army that it would end up endangering the liberty of the people. So that that fear has got to remain in a liberal democracy at the same time that we're defending liberal democracies against uh, autocrats and dictators abroad. Well, I want to come back to your experience in the last few months. But before I do, just quickly, we're constantly told to, to write to our congressperson 
And we're also told to be out in the streets demonstrating if we don't like what's happening. Do either of those things actually make a difference? Do you see anyone paying attention to demonstrations outside? I've been in lots of them, so I'm all for it. But I've always wondered, do people inside actually even hear the screams and yells? Well, certainly they do. Um, you know, first of all, on the letters, I mean, you know, I, I read as many letters and emails and notes as I can to find out what's on people's minds and I get good ideas from them. And, um, you know, even members who, who don't make a habit of trying to read them will get a tabulation of, well, where are my people on uh, women's uh, reproductive autonomy? Are they basically with Alito and the right wingers on the court or are they with Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey? So I think that does make a big difference. And I think uh, the demonstrations are huge for manifesting the depth of people's passions and sentiments. And, you know, that's that's worked on different sides of different questions um, in our history. So, you know, I'm not somebody who uh, would ever understate the importance of First Amendment uh, action and First Amendment activity. I mean, I think we need to be as creative as possible and uh, as imaginative as possible. And that, of course, is the opposite of what we saw on January 6th, because <laughs> nothing is less creative or less imaginative than just violence and beating the hell out of police officers, which is now the MO of America's uh, violent uh, right-wing street forces. Well, you brought us back to January 6th, which, as people may know by now, was the day after you buried your beloved son, Tommy, um, who you lost to suicide. Your book, Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of Democracy, puts trauma first. And um, I want to ask you a little bit about how you look after yourself and, and how your family are coping. Uh, we're still very much, um, you know, in the grieving and mourning and processing uh, dimension of this. I suppose we always will be. We miss Tommy very sharply uh, every day. But, um, you know, he keeps me going strong because he had much greater ambitions for democracy and what it could do, not fewer ambitions. And I know that he would want us uh, out there fighting every step along the way to defend the democracy we have and to expand it and to grow it and to um, build people's voting rights and build people's uh, ability to be represented and then um, to use government as an instrument for the common good. Representative Jamie Raskin, I can't think of anyone who better expresses the slogan of this program. Um, we say this is the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Thank you for being out there doing it and inspiring so many and keeping alive the memory of Tommy, who certainly inspired your family and others. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for having me, Laura. It was, it was great. And keep up your awesome work. Jamie Raskin puts up two cheers for democracy, and I'll see him a few better. What's the alternative to monarchy and aristocracy and one-party systems? Well, that alternative is lots of parties. I'm not saying for sure it would work here, but look at Ireland, Australia, Scotland. Lots of English-speaking places use ranked choice voting. So you can have more parties, especially smaller ones at the table. Turn to Germany and Greece and Finland, you'll find proportional representation in the works. There, governments are formed through agreements among lots of parties. And that tends to get those democracies out of the bitter right-left divide. I'm not promising it would work here, but it's certainly worth thinking about. What's the answer to too little democracy? A lot more of it. 
I think on that, Jamie Raskin and I, and a whole lot of you, would probably agree. For more information on this week's guest, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show, where you will find a suggested reading list and additional related episodes to explore from our archives. That's also where you'll get an invitation to watch the premiere of each week's show on YouTube and chat with me in real time Sundays at 1130 a.m. Eastern. All the details are at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. And don't forget, this month of May, we're celebrating the power of real people like you to spread support for programs like ours. Truly, you have the power to move this conversation forward to more audiences on public television and radio for free by becoming one of our Patreon partners. Patreon partners pony up whatever they can afford, whatever they feel like, to help support this show and keep us non-commercial and advertising-free. We're heard and seen all around the country on PBS stations and community radio, and we're supported. By you. We've been offered a $5,000 match right now. If we can bring in 50 new donations by May 20th, the clock is ticking. Can we depend on you? Sign up at patreon.com forward slash the LF show and join our fantastic Patreon partners or make a one time donation at www.lauraflanders.org forward slash donate. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Jeannie Hopper, Nat Needham, David Newman, Rory O'Connor, Sabrina Artel, and Jeanette Hernandez. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time. I'm Laura.